Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTV. This week's message is brought to us by Pastor Abe Lee. He's preaching from Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. So today is Palm Sunday. Now, Palm Sunday is traditionally the day that starts off something called Holy Week, the week that leads up to Easter, or also known as Resurrection Sunday. For those of you who may not be aware, Easter is, you know, the most significant day for Christians. And it's important enough that, uh, going to be a bad joke and I apologize, but it's important enough for CEOs to come to church. Christmas and Easter only, folks. Yeah, bad joke. The uh, deacons told me not to say it, but I did it anyway. Anyway, today is Palm Sunday, uh, and today's a day, really, that Christians are called to remember that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and when he entered into Jerusalem, there were folks waving palm branches in the air like he was entering in as a conquering hero, right? And this is a day that we are reminded that that same joy, that that same celebration the people of Jerusalem experience is what we hopefully as Christians are experiencing as we feel as Christ enters into our hearts. Now, before we get into today's passage, I want a little tangent. Um, some of you may be thinking or asking, why palm branches? Why palm leaves? At least that's what I was uh, wondering myself before as I was preparing for today. And it turns out that back in the day, and I think it's true still now, that there are palm trees all over Israel. Right? And, and there are stories that include palm branches, palm trees throughout the Old Testament. In Judges chapter 4, verse 4 to 5, it says this. It says, Deborah, a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. And then you read about in 1 Kings, uh, King Solomon, he carved all the surrounding temple walls with carved engravings, cherubim, palm trees, and flower blossoms in the inner and outer sanctuary. This is talking about the temple. Palm trees were uh, also seen as a symbol of victory. Right? Uh, throughout the book of Leviticus, God is instructing uh, the Israelites uh, and reminding them to celebrate their escape from Egypt, their victory over slavery. And he tells them to do that by spending a period of time living in booths, booths made of palm branches, palm leaves, as well as other things. So palm leaves, they symbolized victory. So when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the, I don't know if the folks fully understood the, uh, what their actions really meant, but they didn't know this. They did know that Jesus was somebody significant, someone important. And so if you turn to Matthew chapter 21, verse 8 to 11, it says this. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches or palm branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So the people in Jerusalem, they were thinking, this Jesus guy is going to bring us victory. 
They didn't fully understand everything, but they understood that that was the reality for them, and so hence the victorious entry of the Savior of Israel into Jerusalem. That's Palm Sunday. I don't know if you know this. There are some traditions, Catholicism, the Methodist Church, they like to you know, wave palms in the air during Palm Sunday service, and, and then they'll gather those palms and save them, uh, and they save them until the next year. And what they do is they burn those palms that they've saved, and what they'll do is use the ashes from those burnings and use it for Ash Wednesday when they put the cross on people's foreheads. That's where the ashes come from. Now, we, we don't do all that uh, here at Church of the Beloved, but there is one Palm Sunday tradition that Pastor Clinton and I, we wanted to spend today doing. Let me explain that to you. And there's this phrase called uh, the Passion of Christ. You all may be aware of this personally. I was not familiar with this phrase until Mel Gibson's movie, uh, Passion of the Christ. I, I, I just didn't know it. Um, this phrase, though, the Passion of Christ, it refers to the suffering of Jesus. It refers to the suffering during his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. And it comes from the Latin word pascal, which literally means suffering. And so it turns out that a lot of churches on Palm Sunday, a lot of churches and Christians throughout the world, a lot of them will spend time listening to, hearing, and remembering the story of Jesus' suffering and his crucifixion, the passion of Christ on Palm Sunday. So thank you very much to Elena for reading us that story so that we can continue that tradition on this Palm Sunday. And as Aaron mentioned earlier, this Friday, Church of the Blood is going to be gathering here uh, at 7 p.m. So hopefully you'll be able to join us here at Cervantes. And what we want to do is to spend that night's time, spend time meditating on the passion of Christ, the suffering that Jesus went through on that evening. But I'll tell you today, we're going to be a little less meditative and hopefully a little more instructive because what I'd like to do is I just want to unpack a few key observations from this passion story that was just read. In order to do that, I'd like to start uh, with an understanding or a, a reminder for some of why it is the passion story has to be a thing, why the passion of Christ is even necessary. And to do that, if you think about Isaiah, Revelation, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, there's this phrase there. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Another way to say it is God is holy. And then when God created all of humanity, he created us in his image. And so when he created us in his image, we were created holy. But it's past tense. Because humanity, unfortunately, we screwed it up. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this. Let me turn to that. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sin. I was watching a Bible Project video, uh, and they had this great analogy of God's holiness. I, I really appreciate it. And they compared God to the sun, uh, S, not S-O-N, S-U-N. And if you think about the sun, the sun gives off light. The sun provides power. It sustains life. It's this amazing gift that we all have available to us. But if we were to try to get too close to it, we'd die. If you look at it directly, you go blind. Because there's no way for us to survive without the sun, but there's also no way for us to survive on the sun or too close to the sun. It's just like God's holiness. He says, 
we need God's holiness to provide us life. Yet to draw too near to it, it, it would kill us. Because it's just too, it's too powerful. And if you think about it, when Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden, they walked with God. They were holy. They were in God's presence, but then they made a decision to prioritize their own desires over the one true deity. They chose to follow self over a savior, and that resulted in death entering into our world. It led to sin coming in. Humanity used to be, but is no longer holy. So we are no longer able to enter into the presence of God because God's holiness is so perfect and so pure that its power would destroy us. See, the underlying theme of the Bible is the story of God wanting us to draw near to Him, wanting us to become holy so that we can go back to what God created in the beginning, to be with Him. See, all the rituals, all the practices, the heart transformation, even the temple, these are all things God put in place so that we could be made, at least for a little bit of time, made holy so that we could enter into God's presence. Because God wants us to dwell with Him together. He wants us to be in community with Him together. He wants us to be family with Him together. So on that Palm Sunday, thousands of years ago, the people of Israel, I think, they, they had a basic understanding of this much. They understood that God had promised some sort of Savior, and a Savior that would provide them the means by which they could be made holy and by which they could dwell with God once again. But the people of Israel's, their understanding of what that meant was unfortunately informed by a misunderstanding of Scripture and potentially informed by culture instead of gospel. They, they assumed incorrectly that there would be a conquering hero of Israel that this conquering hero would bring back the chosen ones, them, back to their glory days. Glory days of power and wealth and prestige. So this is the context. This is the background that leads us to today's passage, the reason for the passion of Christ. And so my very first observation that I want to share with you today as I was studying this is based on verse 50. And in verse 50 it says this, but Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. John chapter 19, verse 30, uh, says it like this. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. We need to be made holy to dwell with God in our opportunity to be made holy came at that moment described in verse 50. We can now be made holy by the death of Christ. So the promised victory did not come in the form that the people of Israel expected or even wanted. The palm leaves that they were waving were absolutely appropriate. They were absolutely right. Victory was coming in the person of Christ, but it did not and would not come with a massive show of power or might. Victory came with a humble act of submission. Victory came when Jesus died. Victory came in a form that no one except God could have imagined or designed. 
Now understand, victory did not come with the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the Son of Man, the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is the perfect and example demonstration of Jesus' victory that he won. But victory came when Christ breathed his last. And when he said, it is finished. Let me show you. John chapter 12, verse 27 and 28. Jesus was praying this, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. That's why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The hour that Jesus came for, the moment of victory, is the hour of Christ's death on the cross. That's when God is glorified. That's when Jesus wins. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, it says this, uh, about salvation. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. It's by the death of Christ that victory comes. That's when Jesus wins. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. Paul writes this. He says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, speaking of Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's when the blood of Jesus is dripping from his veins on that cross. That's when Jesus Christ is victorious. That's when Jesus wins. Revelation chapter 5, verse 2 to 6. John's writing about his vision of what the end of days will look like. And he says this, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. And I wept and wept because no one was found worthy open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and his seven seals. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne. And the four living creatures and among the elders. The final image, the final image of the one who brings victory, the triumphant one, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the final image is of a slaughtered lamb. Because that's when Jesus won. God is holy. And he created us to be holy. But humanity allowed sin to enter into the world. Our desires to be God-like, our want to be the star of our own show, to make it all about me, this allowed death to come into our world and we lost our holiness. The story of the Bible is the story of God providing us the means to be holy again so that we might be able to dwell together with our dad in heaven. The passion of Christ is the story of how the death of Jesus the death of our Savior on the cross, how the blood shed by Christ brought victory to those who proclaim him as king. We can be made holy by the death of Christ. 
The resurrection of Christ on Easter is the absolute and perfect and ultimate example in this demonstration of the fact that Jesus won, that Jesus was victorious, but victory came when Christ died. That was the first observation I was making as I was reading through and preparing for today. The second observation I want to share with you all is this. It's focusing on verse 51. It says this, At that moment, the veil in the Holy of Holies was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And for those of you who may not be aware, let me remind you of uh, the, what this curtain or veil is referenced to. You have to turn back to Exodus chapter 26. I'm going to read to you verses 31 to 34 and describe what that curtain is. Verse 31, you are to make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen with a design of cherubim worked into it. Hanging on four gold-plated pillars of acacia wood that have gold hooks and that stand on four silver bases. Hang the curtain under the class and bring the Ark of the Testimony there behind the curtain. So the curtain will make a separation for you between the holy place and the most holy place. And put the mercy seat on the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. And then if you turn to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, it tells you why that curtain had to be placed in the temple, why there had to be a separation. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark or else he will die because I, God, I appear in the cloud above mercy seat. You know, most good stories, whether it's a book or a movie, whatever, they typically include this idea of a barrier, right? An idea of a barrier that has to be overcome for you to get to where you want to be. For example, uh, I'm going to be pandering a little bit. For our Lord of the Ring fans, you have Gandalf and Frodo uh, and their crew. They need to figure out how to get past the doors of Durin to enter into Moria under the Misty Mountains. For our Mandalorian fans, you know, Djarin has to figure out a way to find the living waters uh, that are under the mines of Mandalore to be accepted back into his community. Well, no one knows this reference at all. And here's one, Harry Potter. Harry Potter, he's got Fluffy. Fluffy, the three-headed giant dog that's blocking the way to the underground chambers where you have the sorcerers, or if you're pretentious or English, the Philosopher's Stone. Whichever one of these you want to go with. In every single one of these examples, you have a protagonist. You have a protagonist who has to overcome a barrier to get to where they need or get to where they want to go. Now you've got the greatest story ever told, the gospel. You have a barrier here. You have a barrier placed between us and the holy of holies. A barrier where, placed between us and the place where God dwells, in his temple. And that barrier is there because God is holy, we are not. The priests, back in the day, they were only allowed to pass through that barrier once a year. And, and they had to do a whole bunch of things just to get in there once a year. They had to take a special bath. They had to wear special clothes. They had to do some major sacrifices. And then they had to do even more sacrifices because they were intending to go in there to represent the people of Israel. They had to do all these things to enter into that room once a year. It was a major task to overcome that barrier. And it was a temporary thing because God is holy and we are not. But when Jesus breathed his last breath, when he said it is finished, the veil was torn. 
barrier was removed. There is no longer separation between us and God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, explains what this means like this. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and a living way through the curtain. That is through his flesh. See, my second observation is this. From this passion story, I want you to understand, because of Christ and his ultimate sacrifice, we're no longer separated from God. The barrier is gone. It's been removed. And now we can enter. We can enter because of the death of Christ into the Holy of Holies. Actually, with the tearing of that veil, the Holy of Holies now can dwell within us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. It says this, So then, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Because there's no more barrier. The veil is torn. Now we can be his temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And that is what you are. Because there's no more barrier. The veil is torn. And now you can be God's temple. John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Because there's no more barrier. The veil is torn. And now we can be his temple. I'll tell you, there's a lot of stuff in today's passage. I wasn't planning on fully unpacking all of it. I just want to emphasize a few observations during my time with you today. And the first one was this. God is holy. God is holy, and he wants us to be holy with him. And, and we can be made holy because of the death of Christ on the cross. We have to accept that truth and give to us. And the second thing is this. With that death, with that separation between us and God, that, with that death, that's no longer there. That separation is gone. No longer is a barrier. Because now we can be his temple. And I want to wrap up, start wrapping up with one last observation from today's passage. And it's based on the last two verses that Elena read for us today. Verse 55 and 56. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him were there, watching from a distance. Among them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's son. John chapter 19, verse 25, it describes the scene a little bit differently. It says, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Colpus, and Mary Magdalene. Now, I don't intend to, <coughs> excuse me, throw shade on the guys, but notice that the only male disciple that seems to stick around to the very end is John. But the women, the women stayed. 
The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all mention this. The women stayed. A bunch of Marys uh, were there, uh, others who weren't even named. The women stayed. And I'll, tell, I'll say this. I, I believe that the women stayed because they saw in the gospel, the gospel that Jesus shared and the gospel that Jesus was now dying for, they saw in this gospel an intentionality. It intentionally included them in his ministry. It intentionally includes them in the redemption story. By the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, by his death, sisters and brothers are both made holy. Now, I'll say, there are some who believe that the women stayed at the foot of the Savior's cross because it was safer for them than it would have been for the guys. But I think, if you consider Roman history, Romans, they really didn't have an issue with crucifying and torturing women. Pastor Clay taught us this. Really, the only ones that were safe at the time were Roman male citizens. They could do whatever they wanted. But in spite of this, the women stayed. So this is my final observation, and hopefully a challenge for everyone here. See, in the redemption story that Jesus is living out and lives out, both sisters and brothers are significant. Both are important. Both sisters and brothers are intended to have a relationship with the Redeemer. Both sisters and brothers are the new dwelling place of God. God. And so what this tells us is there is no more, in the family of God, there is no more slave nor free. There is no more Jew nor Gentile. There is no more male nor female. All are given the opportunity, regardless of race, of gender, of orientation, or culture. All are given the opportunity to be made holy by the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, if you consider this, it was, it was a woman who appointed, who, not appointed, anointed Jesus' head with oil to prepare him for the tomb. It was women who stood at the foot of the cross. It was women who found the empty tomb. It was women who were the very first to share the story of Jesus' victory, of Jesus' resurrection. It was women who were the very first evangelists. These women were included not as an afterthought. These women were included as a forethought. That was part of God's plan from the beginning. Women have always and will always have a role to play in the gospel story. And in the same way, all are given the opportunity to play a role in the gospel story, to make the gospel story their own story. So here's my question. Will you be like these women? Because God is holy, and we are not. But God wants us to be holy with him. See, on the cross, Jesus is crying out, Eli, Eli, Rama Sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me, God? Jesus is feeling abandoned. Jesus is feeling alone. He went through all of that so that we wouldn't have to. He died so that we might become holy with him, so that we could take on his holiness. So now there's no more barrier between our Father in heaven and you and me. So my question as I end today is this, will you be like these women? Will you run away? Or will you stay? Will you risk it all like these women did or will you risk it not? 
And, and, and I'll tell you, this is not a question that's limited to those who do not know Christ as their Savior at this time. This is a question for every single one of us because I'm asking each of you, will you be like these women? And will you draw near to the Savior of all every day and every moment? Will you celebrate the victory that the Son of Man, that Jesus bought with his life? Will you live life with the Son? Will you be like these women? Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.